I'm Travis Bader, and this is the Silver Core Podcast. Join me as I discuss matters related to hunting, fishing, and outdoor pursuits with the people and businesses that comprise the community. If you're new to Silver Core, be sure to check out our website, www.silvercore.ca, where you can learn more about courses, services, and products that we offer, as well as how you can join the Silver Core Club, which includes 10 million in North America-wide liability insurance to ensure you are properly covered during your outdoor adventures. Fly fishing, spay fishing, tips, tricks, etiquette, and gear. Buckle up, because that's this week's podcast. I'm sitting down tonight with Brian Niska at the Skeena Spay Riverside Wilderness Lodge in Terrace, BC. Brian is a fishing guide, a certified fishing instructor, and designated master caster and designer of the metal detector series of Pure rods. I've had the pleasure of spending the last few days fishing the Skeena River with Brian and his guides here in Terrace, and I'm excited to be sitting down to record a podcast with you now. Brian, thank you very much for taking the time to do this podcast. Right on, Travis. Thanks very much for coming up to visit us. So in the short period of time that I've gotten to know you, I can tell you are extremely passionate about fishing. Yeah, you know, it's something that's always captivated me ever since I was a kid. I remember being quite young, probably three, four years old, if that, and uh, just, you know, sneaking into my grandfather and my father's tackle boxes and checking out all the lures. So, so I think that's probably where it started. Really? That soon? Yeah, just maybe it was the bright colors or, you know, <laughs> some, some of those uh, salmon plugs were pretty neat. I still remember them. So yeah. Yeah. And then fly fishing got into that when I was about 12. My, my parents bought me an inexpensive fly setup and, and away I went. So where were you fly fishing at 12 years old? Well, the, the first fish I ever caught on the fly was in a, a, a slough. It's called the Bovo Slough. It's in uh, northeast Port Coquitlam alongside the, the Pitt River there. Okay. And uh, it was a Christmas present. So it was out, you know, literally Christmas morning uh, with a little silver fly and caught a cutthroat. That was the first fish I ever caught on the fly. Wow, that's not too bad. Yeah. So tell me about this master caster. That's not exactly an easy thing for a person to get, is it? Well, that, that's part of the triple F fly casting instructor certification. There's there's three levels. There's a, the basic, the masters, and the, the spay instructor. Okay. So, so the masters would be... Uh, the second level of the single hand instruction and uh, currently you know the, there's just the, the one level of spay casting you just fish so much that you decided i know what i want to do i want to open up my own business you started in whistler didn't you yeah you know previous to that i was a ski instructor i i grew up working at grouse mountain my aunt worked there and so i was lucky enough to get jobs at a young age started out selling ice cream did a variety of jobs there but teaching skiing was one of them and so teaching fly fishing was just seemed like an obvious extension of that. You know, the, the casting instructor certification was something that was available locally through a gentleman named Pete Caverhill and Pete Morrison. These were both master instructors. So with the triple F, the basic exams are handled by, by two masters. Okay. To be honest with you, I failed the first time. Because I was like, I can cast a long way. I'll, I'll pass this. It's, it's okay. <laughs> but it's really, like a lot of instructors' exams, it's, it's more about being able to demonstrate correctly, being able to identify and explain casting faults, and, and you know, basically being able to show beginners proper technique. Well, how old were you when you did that? Mm, great, great question. Let's see. That would have been probably eh, about 18. 
18 years old. Yeah, maybe 18, 19, something like that, yeah. Is that common for an 18, 19-year-old person to be a designated master caster? Well, that was a master's. That was the basic. Oh, so okay, I got the, okay. So the story was I got the basic, and I got it prior to going to Chile to, to guide down there because I felt that, you know, this was going to be something to be useful down there. Yeah. And when I came back from Chile, then I did the master's test, which uh, was, I believe, I believe it was... A, I want to say the Kingdom. It's the it was the uh, the, the stadium in Washington that they, they ended up. I think yeah, yeah it's the Kingdom. Go. Was the Kingdom? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Here's here's what I remember about it. I'm not a drinker. This is true. Yeah. I'm not a not a boozer at all. When I was in Chile, I uh, I met the owners of a company called Hexagraph Fly Rods. Okay. Now, now Hexagraph was kind of a neat thing. So bamboo is a, a material that a, a lot of people know about. Sure. And bamboo has an exceptional feel for casting. And and bamboo has you know, power fibers on the outside and a bit of a pithy core. And there's a material called hexagraph, which was from Bruce and Walker. They're making these big, heavy spay rods out of it. Okay. And, and Walt Powell used his taper, taper bars with the hexagraph material and sold that company to a gentleman named Harry Briscoe. And Harry had the hexagraph rod company, and he was one of my clients in Chile. And, uh, you know, Harry caught a really exceptional fish with me, and I think that sort of solidified our relationship. And <laughs> You know, I, I helped them out at some some trade shows, and, and one of the trade shows was in Seattle. And so away I went down there, and the, the test is going to be there. And as it turns out, his his rod builder liked tequila. And, you know, we were we were down there at some... This was like, I think if I remember correctly, this is like when grunge was really popular in Seattle. Sure, sure. And we ended up at some, you know, dive bar drinking tequila, hanging out <laughs> with people. And, you know, the next morning I was like, oh, shoot, I got this test. So what I remember distinctly... And Mike Maxwell and Denise Maxwell were there, and Mike was an old veteran with this, so he knew what, what my issue was. But there I was in the, <laughs> there I was in the basement of the Kingdom, and they have these concrete pillars. I've got my head pressed against the concrete pillar just to get rid of this throbbing, stinking <laughs> headache to pass this, this test. And uh, like I said, I'm not a drinker. This is totally not something that would normally happen. Yeah. But, but yeah, stupid day to choose to be hungover. But I did pass the master's test, probably barely, and. I feel like I've put it to good use since then. So, <laughs> so yeah. And I, I don't know if I've really drank tequila like that in my life again. you got to so. learn to condition yourself a bit better. Yeah. But yeah, that was a long time ago. <laughs> so growing up, my family had a part share in a fishing lodge up in the Bonaparte Lake area. Cool. And it's lake fishing, beautiful area. You hike in or helicopter into it. And as a kid growing up, my idea of fly fishing was you tie a fly on the end of a single hand casting rod and you troll that behind a rowboat until you catch a fish. And that's how I fly fished for many, many years. And just recently I'm being turned on to this spay fishing. What would draw a person to take up spay fishing over top of, I don't know, just casting a spoon? Sure. Well, hey, you had me at the trolling because I, I grew up trolling a fly. We used to do family vacations on Panask Lake. Right. And there's something really exciting about a fast troll and the fish just slamming that rod and that rod just goes like that. Boom. Sure. And you know, with the spay, it's kind of the same in the sense that you're always waiting for that take. And it's all about the anticipation of that take. And what you, you'll often hear people say is, oh, I really, I really felt like I was going to get one there. And, and perhaps they felt that because you know, the way the fly was moving, the way the water was nice and smooth, whatever it was, hmm. it's that anticipation. That's the thing, right? And if you can go out and fish all day and you spend a decent amount of that day 
feeling like you're going to get one. You like the water, you like the way you're fishing it. You know, that's that, that's the thing. And, you know, so far as throwing a spoon, a spoon's a great way to cover a lot of water. Out of all the different techniques to fish for steelhead, spoon fishing will allow you to fish all of the water. And, you know, there's something about the wobble of that spoon that you just can't replicate with a fly. And, right. and trust me, we, we try now with the flies. Today's flies are, you know, they're like lures, right? But I think the big thing with spay casting is, is in between swings, we call it a swing while you're fishing. In between swings, you have the cast. And some people really get into the cast. And if you're casting well, and you, and you like the water you're fishing, I mean, that's the whole deal, right? right. Um, unfortunately, there are times when you catch fish on casts that you're not very proud of. Sure. Right? It, I don't know if it, if it diminished the whole experience, but it, uh, <laughs> you know, it's nice when you're casting well and you're not catching anything, you're just like, yeah, that was all right. That was a good day. It seems like a completely foreign thing to most people who spent some time fishing to now learn about the brand new way to cast and all the different accessories that go along with spay fishing. It's kind of intimidating, honestly. I mean, there's a whole brand new lingo and there's all this extra gear that you have to get into. What's the easiest way for someone to kind of dabble and, and get into this? Well, the truth of the matter is, there's really no such thing as bad equipment right now. And lines have come a long ways. So you, you can't go wrong. Any, pretty much any spay rod can work as long as you have an appropriate line on it. And by appropriate, I mean the line should be a length that relates properly to both your height and style of casting and the length of the rod. So in short, if you're fishing a 12 foot rod, a shorter head like a Skagit head is gonna pair better than a long belly line. And vice versa, if you're fishing a 15 foot rod, you're gonna want something with a longer head because the, you know, the longer rod will move more line in the sweep. Sure. The, the, the sweep is, by the way, the, the, the portion of the, the spay cast where load is created. So for, for those listeners that don't know spay casting, all spay casts start the same. They all start with a lift of the rod tip that clears the line off the water. And, and then you have a move, a set move. And what the set move does is it positions the anchor. And the anchor is a fancy way of saying where the line's gonna be in contact with the water. And from there, we sweep the rod, which is basically your back cast, and this is where load is created. And load is a fancy way of saying bend. So we're basically trying to put a bend in the rod. And then as we complete the back cast, there's not a hard stop like we're single handing. That's more of a transition into the forward cast. And what we're always trying to do is maintain as much of that load, as much of that bend, by keeping tension on everything as we transition from the back cast into the forward cast. And the, the really cool thing about it, it you know, and it, it to me, it, it has more in common with a golf swing than a single hand cast, but it's all about getting the rod to carry the load and then releasing that load. So if you apply your power too quickly, the load isn't there for the full length of the forward stroke, you know, you're, you're not going to get the best possible result. So the equipment will do the work for you when you're casting well. And I think we learn, I think, I think you've learned that now that applying power, I mean, you're, you're a big guy hitting it hard, doesn't necessarily give you line speed. Totally. Line, line speed is what gives you distance. Right. You know, so it's all about loop shape, which means what we want is the, the line to go out in a very tight pointed arrow. And what's gonna cause the line to take that shape is the path of the rod tip when it accelerates. So if the rod tip accelerates in a straight line path, then you're gonna get that nice tight loop. If you use too much of your top hand, chopping wood we might say, okay. the loop's gonna open up because the rod tip now is traveling in a convex path, rounded like the top of a basketball. So it's all about not applying the power too quickly, saying something like no power before midnight, or explaining to someone about 
trying to use their bottom hand as opposed to their top hand. Right. Just operate on the fulcrum a bit better. Yeah. You know, at, at the end of the day, just like golf, <laughs> you know, you're going to have some of them that don't work out exactly the way you want. Sure. Right. But it's consistency and consistency is something that comes with mileage and understanding when things aren't working out, how to break down the cast. So in the case of spay casting, the foundation of the house is your anchor. So if the cast isn't working, is your anchor in the right spot? So this is just a very simple thing. And I, I bring that up because today when we were on the river, there was a period where your anchor was too far back. And then right. as soon as you made the adjustment to put it where it was supposed to be, boom, the cast started to work for you. Totally. Now I've noticed a trend in the fishing lodge up in the Bonaparte Lake area. Uh, one of the owners was a lawyer. Uh -huh. uh, another one was, had his own accounting firm. Another guy was a securities trader. And it seems that fly fishing tends to attract a certain type of person or a couple different types of people. Anyways, I've, it seems to me from my sort of casual observation and not in it as deep as you are, it'll attract people who are very particular about the way that they like to have things done, right? And it may be very methodical in their approach. And it also seems to attract the type of people that just absolutely love being in the outdoors and experiencing it in as, I guess, as rustic as possible. Is, is that a fair observation? Yeah, you know, I think within fly fishing itself, I think that there's a lot of differences. Hey, I, I could say the same thing within spay. And, you know, if we were to come up with some stereotypes, let, let's break it down this way. Let's say that, you know, when I first started fly fishing, I really wanted to have a fishing vest. And when I got a fishing vest, I wanted to fill that vest with, you know, as many boxes of flies and <laughs> knickknacks and this, that, and the next thing. And I'm not sure what my motivation was. I think I, I just wanted to be prepared. But, you know, what I learned over a very short period of time is that it's not comfortable to wear a vest full of a bunch of crap, right. no matter how important that stuff is. And if you're trying to spay cast, that stuff is going to be in your way. Now, if you're trout fishing and someone who, and there's different types of trout fishing, okay? So if, if you're the type of trout fisherman who has a vest full of stuff and you know, you're, let's say you're a really technical kind of guy and sure. very organized and all your boxes have little labels and these are your nymphs and these are your dry flies <laughs> and, you know, you've got everything you might possibly need. You know, spay casting is going to give you a bit of a relief from that because the truth of the matter is you don't need a vest. You need three or four flies. Like, really, like you don't need a lot of flies. Right. You need maybe a couple sink tips to cover the water. And if you have sort of a plan already where you're going to be fishing, you might not even need that, just the one that's on there. A spool of 15 or 20 pound maximum ultra green and you're good to go. So it's, it's very minimalist and it's very free in that sense. And once you move away from having this vest weighing down on your shoulders and you're trying to fly cast mm. and you're just, you know, you don't have to worry about that anymore. It's, 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 yeah, it's very liberating. Cool. So I think that within fly fishing, you've got, you know, the people who pursue big game in the warm water, saltwater environment, like your tarpon fishermen, your sure. permit fishermen. These are a very dedicated bunch. These are like the trophy hunters. Then you've got, you know, the technical trout guys. And these are the type of guys who, you know, they, they understand why the fish is feeding, when it's feeding, and they're very, very good at observing what's going on in the river all the way around. And, you know, they're essentially trying to give the fish exactly what the fish wants to eat right then you got the, the trollers at the lake like you were totally you know they're you know they, they they got they got a fly which they believe in and they put it on there and they drag it around <laughs> if it doesn't work they change it up yeah maybe not quite as in tune with what's going on hatch wise 
you know, maybe they're, you know, socializing. It's a fun, it's a fun day out. Sure. You know, then you've got the steelhead crowd. And the steelhead crowd is like, some of them come across as kind of the spiritual thing because steelhead fishing is hard. Most of the time we don't catch anything. If you're a numbers guy, and I'm not going to pass judgment about what it means to be a numbers guy, but steelhead fishing isn't for numbers people. Um, numbers people are happier fishing for pink salmon or bass or coho in Alaska. Right. If you're a steelhead person, you know, you're, you're an optimist and you probably enjoy crappy weather because a lot of times steelhead <laughs> fishing takes place in you know, challenging weather conditions. And it, I suppose it's almost like a communal suffering thing when, when you have a lodge full of people who are soaking wet and cold and yeah. maybe two of them have had a bite, but everyone's really happy and isn't it nice to come back to a warm lodge at the end of the day? There, there's maybe something to that. But the longer you go without a bite, you know, you go three or four days without a tug, and then all of a sudden you, you, a fish rips your arm off and way it goes. You, you don't forget that versus some guy who caught 32 bass today. Right? That's a good point. So it, it's a different kind of deal. It's, it's more about the hunt. And, and I say it's about the hunt because you really have to believe that what you're doing is going to work. Mm. So this is, it's really a mental thing, right? So it's, you know, you don't necessarily change your approach too much. You, you have a plan. You believe where the fish are. You have a fly on there that you think is going to work, and and you know you you just you execute that plan versus running through your fly box with a bunch of different flies and hoping something will bite. Most of the time out here on the Skeena, there's not a fish in front of us, but we're always doing what we believe to be the right thing. Meaning we're fishing the right fly that we believe in in a spot that looks great to us, and and we're doing it with with confidence, but. It, you, you never want to feel like, okay, the river owes me something. I need to get a bite. I need right, a fish. Right. You just have to be kind of open to that happening and, you know, keeping that fly in the water. However many years of guiding this has been, I don't know. I think it's probably 20, 28 or something like that. <laughs> I, I can tell you two things. First thing is that the best casters, the people who can throw it the farthest, do not catch the most fish. This is true. And it's very important because, you know, the fish are not that far out. The, the second thing is, Okay, sure, you can go fishing for an hour and catch something, but the folks that spend the most time with their fly in the water encounter the most fish. Sure. And, you know, this has been proven time and time again. It, it's, it's okay to take a break, but from a client standpoint, the more time you keep that fly in the water, the better your chances of success. Because you fish 8, 10 hours, you have fish in front of you maybe for a quarter of that time if you're lucky. That would be mm. huge. And if that happens to be when you're sitting in the boat having lunch, might not uh, might not be the best use of your time, unless of course the lunch was fantastic. <laughs> Let's talk about gear a little bit. Sure. So these Pureway rods, you're a designer for one. Yeah. So Jeff's a good buddy of mine. That's Jeff Pureway, Pureway Rod Company. He's got an interesting story. He uh, was a rod builder. Actually, he was a stockbroker. To be fair, he was a stockbroker from mm, Newfoundland. Okay. He was working in Calgary. And rod building was a hobby. And he had a friend who lived in South Korea where a lot of rods are built. And so he was over there on a fishing trip and also sourcing some hard to find rod material, like rod building material. And he ended up have becoming friends with a, a gentleman who had a rod factory, who was building rods for a lot of big name companies. And, you know, probably knowing Jeff, it was maybe over a few beers or what have you, he, you know, he carved out a little niche in this guy's production schedule and he was off to the races. Nice. And the development of his business is pretty cool because 
if, if you've been to Calgary, you know that the Bow River runs right through it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks who fish the Bow float in drift boats, right? Okay. But a lot of the younger people don't have drift boats. Right. So a lot of the younger crowd is, you know, they're at these dog parks, like dog walking parks where you can access the river, footbridges, that type of thing. And they're fishing from the bank. And so Jeff would kind of patrol these sort of areas and, you know, he was basically selling his rods out of the, the trunk of his car and, <laughs> you know, picking up garbage as he went and helping people with their casting. It was really a grassroots kind of deal. Wow. But a lot of those folks were the early adapters of spay casting in Alberta because and it's a little different than here. What a lot of those folks are doing are fishing like, you know, San Juan worms or whatever, and they can fish more than one fly underneath the bobber and the spay rod fishing from the bank made it easy to cover the water. Right. So, you know, Jeff was in on the, for, for Alberta, Jeff was in on the spay really early. And I met him at the, uh, the Canadian fly fishing show and, you know, struck up a conversation with Jeff's rep and he said, hey, what do you think of the rods? And I said, oh, they're all right. But, you know, have you ever, have you ever considered maybe making the butt of the rod a little bit softer in relation to the middle section of the rod and making that a bit stiffer. Now, most rods, most spay rods, and actually most, most fly rods are progressive and flex, meaning the tip is softer than the butt. Okay. When we spay cast, as we talked about earlier, we're creating load in the sweep. And we're not stopping the rod to release the load on the back cast. What we're trying to do is keep the load within the rod on the back cast. And load comes into the rod from the tip goes to the butt and when it leaves it goes out the opposite and the problem with you know a conventional progressive action rod that's stiff in the butt and soft in the tip is it doesn't want to keep the load in the butt and that's where most of the power is mm. so you know the, the concept was to to build the flex pattern so at 12 o'clock meaning at the part of the forward cast where the rod would essentially be straight up and down mm -hmm. and and this is where the rod has to be the most bent has to carry the most load okay so if you look at a flat roof line, a horizontal line, and you think, okay, if my rod tip is going to accelerate in a straight line, this is essentially the path that it's going to take. So, you know, look at this beam and you think, you know, that rod tip is on that. At what point is the rod going to be most bent? Is it going to be most bent at 12? Let's call it uh, 11 and 1 or 10 and 2. Three options. And if you think about it, it's got to be when it's straight up and down sure. for, for the rod tip to be on that line. So, what we did is we, we worked backwards from there. So we wanted our flex pattern to be nice and balanced then to have the rod carry the deepest bend. And by softening the butt of the rod, basically underneath the cork, we came up with a, a rod that would very easily keep its load through the transition at the end of the sweep into the forward cast. And so you get a ton of line speed without having to you know, work very hard. The rod does all the work for you. And that's the metal detector series. Yeah. Um, we started out with... Well, we were going to start out with with uh, a couple of different rods in it. We ended up starting out with three. So we did a, a, a 12 foot 510, 510 grain rod, which is kind of like a 7.8. Okay. okay. So this is kind of your all around trout light salmon rod. Then we did a heavier rod, which I think you were fishing today. That's the 720, right. thir 13 foot 5 inches. This was purpose built for, for Chinook and large steelhead. Uh, then we also had a switch rod. Now a switch rod's a, a rod that can be cast single hand or spay. Right. So it's a compromise rod. Sure. So generally speaking, a switch rod doesn't spay cast as well as a two-hander and it doesn't single hand as nice as a, a single hand because it's a little bit bigger. Right. And the failure of a lot of switch rod designs are that they're too long to single hand without, you know, getting tired. Right. So 
10 and a half feet is, is sort of the magic number and that's that's pretty much where we were with that and that's a that's a, a 400 grain so that's a 6.7 perfect rod for fishing the bow and so those were the three initial ones and then we wanted a, kind of like a heavier steelhead rod that, to fill the gap so we came up with a, a 600 which is 12 foot 10 inches right and i think you actually own one of those i do have one of those yes you have, you have a couple of those pardon yeah. me um and that's that's my favorite rod for fishing the skeena that that's just the perfect all-arounder and now we have a, a couple rods in the six piece series we have a uh, 675 grain which is basically uh you know a, a total middle of the road salmon steelhead rod just a little bit beefier than the than the 600 and and a bit a bit of a detuned version of the the chinook rod and you know that's a real popular one with atlantic salmon guys because totally. so you fly with that you can throw it in your backpack yes, yeah it's, it's so it's so easy i think that's the way of the future because it's not that people don't trust the airlines but they just don't want to give them extra money for another bag so yeah, exactly. being able to stuff it in their suitcase makes it a lot harder for me when i'm at the airport by the way and i'm trying to pick out you know who our guests are <laughs> usually you're looking for the rod tubes and these guys just have like briefcases with rods in them but and now we have a, a new one coming out, which is a, a different material. I'm not probably supposed to talk about it yet because it's not out, but it's definitely something to, to watch for this year, hopefully. And, and that's going to be a, a, a lighter, stiffer steelhead rod. And um, I forgot, we also have a competition rod, a 15 foot, uh, 1200 Jeez. grain thing. That, so there's a bunch of them. There's no a bunch kidding. of metal detectors. You started out for three, and you got what, like six, seven? Yeah, it's, it, it's added up. And then we've also, we've also done uh, the X series which by the way pureway had before sage copied them on that name um, <laughs> true story really? yeah yeah true story and they, they sent him a letter saying you can't he did he never did he never did trademark or anything but they said hey well you, it's a letter you can't copyright it no it's yeah, you can't trademark it i thought it was cheesy to be honest with you but copycats um <laughs> And May, you just can't get away from that. Doesn't matter what business you're yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. So we we took it as a compliment. Jeff sure. did that way. He's also done a shorter space series called the Renegade series, and this is with Jerry French, who's one of the original Skagit guys, one of the originators of the Intruder Fly, and just an all-around uh, magician on the water. So, yeah, Pierway's coming on strong, and he he's got a different business model because he doesn't really sell to dealers. Okay. If you want to buy a Pureway rod, you, you got to be on the Bow River. You got to go see Jeff at his his shop, which yeah. is basically his workshop and a little retail store in Calgary. Okay. Um, and then you know a few few lodges and stuff sell them where, where people use them. So yeah, I'm happy to be involved with Jeff. Jeff's just a really good dude, but you're hard pressed to find a bad newfie. It's true. So on the side of that rod, there's a picture of a fish, mm-hmm. sort of flames on the fish, or what is that? That was the logo for Whistler Fly Fishing. So that was. Um, uh, that was a, a design my brother came up with many years ago, and we sell lots of hats and T-shirts and that type of thing with it. See, I was told that people who weren't into fishing at all would come by and purchase this gear just for that logo. Uh, you know, Whistler's funny. People are always buying souvenir-type things. So, mm. yeah, we, we sold a lot of stuff with that fish on it for sure. Fly fishing, spay casting. This has typically been, in days of old associated with more stodgy old men on the river. But you're definitely seeing a transition over the years. You're seeing a much younger crowd getting into it, a much wider demographic. I'm wondering how much you had to play in all of that with uh, Whistler Spaycasting. I mean, locally anyways. Yeah, okay, so I think the first thing to understand is the, the best swung fly fisheries in the world are, are places like Argentina, Russia, Iceland, Norway, 
Sure, BC, right? Sure. And the big difference between BC and a lot of these other places are, are the access. So I'll give you an example. So might as well start here. Spay, Scotland, right? Sure. To fish in Scotland on a really good stretch of river typically, perhaps not always, but typically requires a fair amount of, of money. Okay. Sure. <laughs> this is this is not something you can't just like buy a rod and go. Yeah. You know, you, you need to have the rights to fish there. Some land access. Yeah. And Water and access. you know, I think Norway's even more complicated. Iceland's become less complicated, but there's a common theme here and that usually you're gonna have some money to do this. And BC is totally different because in BC you're not restricted where you can go fishing. And so the average age of a, 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 a smung fly salmon angler here is much lower than than say England, as an example, which is a tremendous investment in our future. It's just, and it's just the way it worked out. I mean, the, the whole public access thing here is, is just superb, right? It's as phenomenal. A, yeah, as a BC resident, you buy your license once, you can go wherever you want. Sure, we do restrict the non-residents a bit. Hmm. You know, there's certain rivers where they can't fish on a weekend or, or one day of the week or whatever it is. At the copper, it's three days they can't fish, but they still got lots of other options. So in Eastern Canada, we have, uh, you know, Quebec's got some of the best Atlantic salmon fishing in the world. And the way that they control access there is through something called the ZEC. And essentially what they're doing is limiting the amount of anglers on a particular section of river. So it's, it's almost like you have to make an appointment to be able to go fish a piece of water. Whereas in BC, we can travel around and fish at our whim, provided we have our license. Right. So I, I guess where I'm going with all this is, is you don't have barriers for people to access the water. Sure, they have to buy the gear and they'll probably get some waders, but then they're good to go. And, you know, for myself, you know, skiing and fishing always been my passion. We talked about, you know, how I started as a ski instructor. So obviously I'm in Whistler and what am I gonna do for the summer? Mm. Okay, well, I know I'll be a golf pro, okay? I'm not a bad golfer, but I'm not a good golfer. <laughs> and so I got a job on the golf course, right? Nick Nicholas North. And I was golfing all the time. I was like, oh, I'll figure this out, yeah. right? A couple rounds a day. I'll be a pro before you know it. Yeah. And meanwhile, I, I, I had done some fish guiding previous. And, you know, I ended up starting to work fish guiding. So I was volunteering at the golf course, trying to bang out, a, you know, let's say 10 rounds a week because I wanted to be a, a golf pro. Yeah. Because it would supplement my, my skiing in the winter. And, and meanwhile, I was sort of spending a little bit of time fish guiding, which I'd already been doing. And I, I realized hey, there's a lot of potential here. And the golf course, I was also figuring out that unless you're a really great golfer, a golf pro is going to stand next to someone at the driving range, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're teaching skiing, you're out on the hill, right. when you're guiding fly fishing, you're out on the river, it wasn't quite as exciting as I sort of pictured it. I mean, I, I wasn't like point. imagining I'd be like out on the tour or anything, but, <laughs> but you know, I just decided that, okay, I was going to, golf was going to be a recreational thing for me. Besides, it's really hard. I'm not that good. So, you know, Whistler at that time had a ton of tourist traffic that was looking for an activity in the summer. And, you know, you could pick, pick a thing. I mean, ATV tours, horseback tours, mountain bike tours, it's all there, okay? Right. But float tubing, so sitting in the, mm -hmm. the floating tube on the local lakes, and there's some good lakes there, but that was kind of your, your standard guided trip. But there was some river fishing. It wasn't right in Whistler, but there was some river fishing, and it was pretty good at the right time. But here's the thing, the right time wasn't really in the summer. The right time was actually in the spring, the winter, and the fall, mm. okay? So the, the float tubes in the summer, 
a lot of those people, you know, they'd never done it before. So we put them in the float tube and they kicked around and they were trolling like, like, you, yeah. like you were, only they're in a float tube. Yeah. But they all wanted to learn how to cast. But learning how to cast in a float tube is not the ideal situation. Because right. you're sitting down, right? Yeah. So I was like, you know, never mind being a fishing guide. I'm going to start a fly fishing school and I will teach these people on the grass how to cast. And then if they want to go in the float tube, we'll sell them a guided trip. But this is this is kind of the whole thing started. Very smart. Yeah. And and then we did our real fishing in the other three months, especially in the winter. That's when the good trout fishing was. And so over the course of a decade or more, you know, we, we built up a pretty good winter steelhead clientele. And a lot of those folks are, are still with us today here at Skeenis Bay. But, you know, certainly the local Whistler residents and, you know, I, I want to say your average Whistler resident is, is probably in their 30s. I don't know if that's true or not. You know, there's... there's Seems certain, that way. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a young town. Even mm. even old folks seem young there. It's, mm. a, it's a young town. It's a great place. Tremendous sense of community. But everyone is really outdoors orientated. Mm. Ever looking for looking for something new to do outside. And I can't count the number of, you know, ski and snowboard pros that came through my shop and wanted to get into fly fishing. And, you know, so, some of them now are really accomplished fly fishers. Uh, a lot of times it would be because they had an injury. They, you know, they, mm. they couldn't ride up on the glacier in the summer, so they, they were going to fly fish or learn how to fly fish. But, you know, I, I think I did sell a lot of people their first fly rods. I definitely sold a lot of people their first spay rods. And, you know, I, overall our clientele at out of that shop was much younger than, say, you know, your typical Hardee's crowd, right? Right, right, right. And I think for the lodge, too, I should mention this. Your typical steelhead lodge in BC, sure. Old rich white guys are there, right? This right. is this is what you would expect. Yeah. And I and I think our clientele here is much more diverse than that. We do get a lot of couples, we get a lot of families, we get a lot of kids, lots of females. Yeah. You know, we've had female guides, still have female guides. And, you know, I, I think it's just good business, if nothing else, because if you limit your clientele to one type of client and they're older, however more years are you gonna get out of them? Totally. Right. If if you have a client who's in their twenties, right, yeah. and if you it's some of your life, yeah, 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 totally. And you know, you, you, when you have couples as clients, they, they tend to be well behaved. They don't mm. they don't keep the rest of the guests up, seeing who can get the drunkest. <laughs> if the wife's into fly fishing and she's trying to get her husband into fishing, and he's doing it, she's happy regardless of whether the river's full of fish or not. Right. If people are trying to get their kids into it and the kids aren't bored, they're stoked. Yeah. And I think the crew of the team that we have here, what, what they do exceptionally well is, is teach. You know, there's some lazy fishing guides in this world um, and, and everyone can have an off day. And some fishing guides think their job description is to sit in a boat and drink coffee. And if you hook something, they'll come with the net. <laughs> Other fishing guides are going to stand at your shoulder and do their best to, you know, if, if nothing else, improve your casting or make you understand why why they have you fishing a particular spot at a particular time. So if you don't catch something today, at least there's some value that down the road, maybe this knowledge will still be there for you. So I think one thing we've done well as a business is get new people into it. And of course, that's creating new clients. So that's, right. that's way better than, you know, trying to steal clients from another lodge or something totally. like that. So yeah, I think, you know, if you're, if you're, cli- if you're looking at your clientele and you're a lodge owner, and it's all a bunch of old, rich, white guys, you should be really freaked out right now. Yeah, that's a good point. Especially if they're not Canadians, because uh, yeah. quite frankly, I think uh, I think we're going to be dealing with domestic clientele for another year at least. I think you're right on that one. 
for somebody wanting to get into spay fishing, what does the season look like if they're willing to travel around BC a bit? Oh man, it's, it's year round for sure. Really? So um, let, let's pretend they live in the lower mainland because most people do, totally. right? Uh, you, you, sometimes you get a real winter, but <laughs> let, let's, let's say January. So January, you, you can be up the, the Squamish system and spay fishing for trout. And then steelhead tend to start showing up in February, March. So you've got steelhead fishing up there. You've also got steelhead fishing out in the Fraser Valley, out in the uh, tributaries of, of the Fraser as well as the, the Vetter itself. Obviously a Fraser tributary too. Yeah. Once we get into the first bit of summer, late spring, say, like May, you're deal usually dealing with high water. Okay. Yep. So this is this would be the time when you know your spay fishing options do get a little bit limited. Now, there's certain systems that are lake fed. And I don't want to add pressure to them, so I'm not going to put them to name right now. But right. there's certain systems that are lake-fed that freshet's not quite as abrupt. Mm. And, and you can often fish through May. It, June's going to be the tough one, but then you have other rivers that are, are quicker to recover. And I'll, 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 the Kitimat is a good example. The Kitimat is a great river in June for Chinook, right? Okay. That's the prime time to fish it. Then we get into July. Now you can fish the Skeena for, for Chinook salmon and steelhead. Uh, lots of pretty much any... Any Chinook River is that's open is, is good in, in late June, early July. August is prime time for, for steelhead migration through the Skeena, so that's happening. Once we get into September and October, the tributaries start fishing good. You know, the, the Bulkley has almost half of the, the Skeena steelhead return in the summer, and it probably has at least half the, the steelhead anglers. So, yeah. you know, with almost 100 fishable miles, the, the Bulkley is really easy access and, and a great choice, especially for a, a first you know, do-it-yourself type steelhead trip just because the access is so good around Smithers. Yeah. And, you know, the latter part of the fall, you could be back down on the, the Fraser system or you could be down on the Squamish uh, fishing for coho and chums or you could still be up here fishing for, for steelhead in the big northern coho. So, wow. So, yeah, I mean, it, it really, it goes on and on. You, you don't have to have a, an off-season because our typically our climate's so mild. So here's a question for you. So every odd year in the lower mainland, the pink salmon will run up the Fraser. Mm -hmm. And it's always fun. We live in Delta area. It's real close, easy access. And people in Richmond and Delta and up the river will just spin cast and catch some pink salmons, put them in the smoker. Would you spay cast for something like that? I've never seen somebody do that. Sure. You know, you can swing flies for pinks. In, in the Squamish, it's very popular. So Squamish gets pinks the same time you would get them down there, generally. Right, okay. And uh, so this would be typically fishing the lower reaches of the Squamish. The, the popular area would be around the mouth of the Mamquam. Right, okay. And and yeah, just swinging little pink flies, uh, like a, a six, seven weight spay rod works beautifully. But on the Fraser? You know, I, I've, I've never, done it. Never actually I, no, seen I've, it. I've absolutely done it on the Fraser a long time ago, but yeah. it was near near Chilliwack. I've never fished down your way on the lower river. Right. I, I don't. I, I don't know. Um, you know what the depth would be like, or if there's gravel bars there, or you know if you'd be trying to cast from a boat. But I, I imagine it's possible. Yeah, I guess so. I'm gonna try it. Yeah, you should. <laughs> you absolutely should. Absolutely, I will. I'll uh, take a picture of it and I'll put it up on the website. <laughs> right. How about etiquette? Like a little oh. bit about basic etiquette, because that's one of the things that as a getting new into any sport can be intimidating for people. Like, where do I, where do I step in? Like, what, what's the right thing to do? And I mean, you know, everyone talks about these fights breaking over out on rivers that are crowded over improper etiquette. That, that's a superb question. And it's a complicated issue because different rivers have different systems, but generally speaking, 
most people are fishing down the run. And what I mean by that is if, if you approach a run and, and there's, it's a big run, but there's already one person fishing it, but it's a big run, there's room for more than one. The appropriate thing to do would be to, to go in behind that person. Right. Now, the actual appropriate thing to do would be to go up and have a brief conversation and say, hey, right. I was gonna, do you mind if I hop in behind you? And, and that person would say, no, I'm gonna go ahead. And, and what's great about doing that is often there'll be an exchange of information that's going to be beneficial for you. So that, that person might say, oh, by the way, yeah, I caught a fish earlier, I had a bite, or I've seen a few. Yeah, you know, at least right. you'll, you'll have a better understanding of what's taking place. You know, at, at, at that point, you've identified yourself as, as a decent human being, and you're not trying <laughs> to wreck this person's day, and you're saying, hey, do, don't you mind if I fish behind you? And they're going to say, sure, go ahead. The wrong move would be to walk in below that person, meaning downstream, right. and if they're trying to work their way through the run. Because a lot of times when people are spay casting, they'll cast, swing, take a step. You know, they'll work their way, cover the water. And, and you've just like made this roadblock in front of them. And, and, and if you're just gonna stand there, man, that's even worse. It's mm. bad enough if you jump in front of them and you're moving, yeah. right? But if, if you're gonna stand there, then it's... But I think a lot of times when, when this sort of situation happens, not all, but I think a lot of times it's not that the person's a real jackass, or that they're doing it on purpose, I think it's just they don't know. And some fisheries, like I use the veteran salmon season as an example, it's, it's a crowded river. People aren't moving through the run. People just right. get their rock and they hang out on their rock and, and they hope that the fish are gonna come by. And you know, if you're bar fishing on a river like the Fraser or the Skeena, obviously you're, you're set up in one spot, mm. right? You're not moving. So it's important to make that distinction. Is this an angler who's staying in one spot is this an angler that's moving? So back to our initial river conversation, you walked in, there's a guy fishing the run, that's okay, there's lots of space. Hey, how's it going? Are, are you moving through? Oh yeah, I'm moving through. Okay, perfect, I'll, do you mind I'll hop in behind you? Or if the person's like, no, I'm just, this is my spot, I'm just gonna hang out here. You're, they might say you're welcome to go below me. They might say you're welcome to go above. Right. But at least you've had the conversation, right? They're, they're not gonna say, hey, this is my run, beat it. Right, right. Right, but you know, at least you have a better understanding. And if for some reason you don't want to talk to them, at the very least, instead of hopping in, observe them. And if it looks like they're moving through the run quickly, then by all me and by all means, you know, give them lots of space and go well above them. Just jump in. Yeah. Angler etiquette is, is is sort of a funny thing because once again, I think a lot of times there's misunderstandings at play when there are problems. And it is somewhat localized, meaning there are certain stretches of river where, you know people just kind of walk in and do their thing. But it, it's a funny thing because if you and I were, were fishing uh, just any river, how about the river right here, a little, sure. little tributary of the, the Skeena, and we were driving along it, we wanted to fish a spot, and there was a car parked there. Hmm. We would probably keep going. Cause, cause, right, you don't you want know. to be around. Yeah, we're, we're not trying to go and make new, we're just going fishing, right? right? We'll go to a different spot. But as density increases, as every parking spot we go by seems to have a car, now we're like, oh, well, there's only one there, so maybe we'll go there. Mm. And, and when it gets really bad, with, oh, there's only five there, well, there's still, there's still probably room for us. So, you know, when we talk about regulation, and I, this ties in nicely with what we said before about how they've addressed maintaining a quality angling experience in other, other places by limiting the number of participants, and we don't want to go down that road in BC. Mm. You know, we don't necessarily need a law that says, okay, there's only X amount of people allowed to fish a particular stretch of water in a, a period of time. 
because most people will go, okay, well, this part's kind of crowded. This isn't the experience I'm looking for. I will right. drive 20 minutes further or I'll go to a different spot or I'll get up earlier or I'll fish later. They will adjust their own, you know, their own day mm. in a way to avoid the crowds. And some people like, I think some people like the crowds. I think some people will seek out places where there's lots of people fishing. Yeah, I don't get that. Because, because that must be a good spot, right? Oh, totally. <laughs> um, but, you know, there we are, we're driving along the river. Okay, there's not a car here, perfect, we'll go in, right? So I think that certain rivers, when they have space, when they're not over, let's say, oversubscribed, mm-hmm. the, you know, you, you have this, this real orderly, way that people conduct themselves, where they don't impede each other's access or negatively affect each other's day. And when we find ourselves in a situation where, you know, the density is such that, you know, it's it's not really the experience we're looking for, it, it's a great excuse to, to go elsewhere. And I also find that a lot of times crowds are somewhat reactionary. What I mean by that is if fishing has been productive, if there's been a lot of fish caught, following that period, days or week, whatever, you'll see an increase in, in people fishing. Sure. But often the fishing will then slow down, right? Uh, and, and then people say, oh, fishing, then they'll stop fishing for a bit and they'll wait for the next push of fish to come in. But they're not out there all the time. So the folks that are out there will, will reap the rewards, so to speak. Mm. And then other people will hear that, oh, there's a bunch of fish around and then they will descend on the river and, and by then it's kind of over. So there's no substitute for, for time on the water. Just getting out there. Yeah, and you know, in this day and age where the learning curve is pretty pretty quick in the sense that you've got Google Earth, you've got message boards, mm. you can hit up the tackle shop. It's, it's very easy to get information about where to go. So there's no such thing really as a secret spot. It's all about timing. And what I love about the Skeena and our experience out here is, you know, today the river is still kind of high for this time of year. Okay. But looking at our forecast, it's going to be dropping. It's going to drop 8, 10 inches a day, probably. So seven days from now, the river will be you know, five feet lower vertically than mm-hmm. it is today. And there'll be new gravel bars and new spots. And you know, existing spots will change. So you know, from one day to the next, you, know, you really have to be paying attention to what's going on to understand where to spend your time. Because it's a huge river. You, know, you can't fish everything. So you have to pick the spots and the spots within the spots that you want to concentrate your effort. And it's, it's such a dynamic thing with the, the water level changing so, so dramatically here. And then also, you know, fluctuations and run timing for fish, especially how it relates to tides. Right. Yeah. You know, it's not quite as simple perhaps as, as a smaller river that might have, you know, this is the meat hole and, you know, this is the spot that everyone wants to go on on the Skeena that with the, the fish moving through, it, it's it's really about timing. Wow. And and you know there's no substitute for confidence, keeping your fly in the water, just believing. Fish with intent. Yeah, just fishing. You know, making a plan and then fishing your plan. Well, Brian, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me and to share your passion of fishing with the Silver Core Podcast listeners. Cool. Hey, it's been fun having you guys here, and look forward to doing it again. Absolutely. Absolutely.